that's exactly what we're doing is we're doing exercises and we're doing agile combat employment and we're putting very young NCOs and officers in charge and we're giving them a mission and resourcing them to that level and they just deliver. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Later in the program, General Ken Cruiser Wilsbach, the commander of the Pacific Air Forces, on how the United States Air Force is building capabilities across a vast theater ringed by two authoritarian great powers, China and Russia. And this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond, and the XA100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell's sponsors are daily podcasts. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra-intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on a truncated All Wings Considered? Yes, Vago, we'll just have two quick headlines and then get to General Wilsbach because he has a lot to say. The U.S. Army has put out a sources sought notice for another up to 255 60 Mike model Blackhawks. We had talked before about how Bell's future long-range assault aircraft might wind up being the high end of a high-low mix. Well, it sounds like the Army wants to make sure they have that lower end covered. And Vago, you were on the scene yesterday for another big reveal. I was indeed. GE Aerospace flew a bunch of reporters and analysts to their research center in Niskayuna, New York, just outside Albany, to showcase the company's hypersonic capabilities. And of course, this is coming as GE Aerospace prepares next year to launch as a standalone company. So the senior leaders are, are really eager to highlight the company's capabilities. And that research center is an extraordinary kind of old school way of doing it. It's a 500 some odd acre research campus with, I think, almost 700 scientists and engineers that are just working on all kinds of stuff. And uh, hypersonics has been a very long focus for the company. And I'm not just saying this, but the technologies and the folks that we met with up there were uh, very impressive. And this morning, the company announced that in November, it tested a dual mode ramjet with rotating detonation combustion at simulated hypersonic speeds. A lot of folks are going to listen to this and say, I don't understand you know, what that exactly means. We're uh, going to get into a much more fulsome description next year when folks from the company join us. Uh, but the long and the short is it could prove to be a breakthrough propulsion system for hypersonic vehicles because it could offer greater efficiency and every bit of efficiency is greater range given that it takes a lot of power to drive something uh, you know, anything, even something relatively small at speeds that great and have it actually stay together. And I think the the interesting piece of this is the company has made sizable investments in all the key hypersonic technologies from high temperature uh, materials, uh, as well as electronics that can survive 800 centigrade, which mm -hmm. is yeah, pretty hot. And what I also think was interesting is they found a way to turn uh, their carbon matrix composite technology they developed for GE 90 engine blades, which was a first, uh, by exposing them under great pressure to special chemical vapors that can then withstand even more temperature, you know, sort of 3000 degrees or more, which is really uh, fascinating. That regime of flight is just extraordinary, the kind of challenges that are exposed to it. And the Chinese are doing some of this stuff at scale. Uh, so we have sort of boutique and we're sort of getting our hypersonic shoes on. Mm -hmm. We really have to build up that infrastructure uh, and capability and try to do it quickly if we're going to match pace with a country that 
is, is an authoritarian country with a lot of money uh, and a lot of technology. I remember A.J. Piplica from Hermias telling us last week that the U.S. has a grand total of about one half hour of hypersonic flight time on its books. So it sounds like we're getting ready to well exceed that in the year and two ahead. It depends on how it's defined and how much of that is unclassified and how much of that is classified at this point. But yes, right, we don't have that much experience, whereas we know that the Chinese are doing a lot of work in this and each each test they do is gaining more experience. That's very exciting stuff, Fago. Another thing that's very exciting is I believe that this is our last conversation of the year. It is our last conversation. Uh, well, it's not. It's the last formal air power program, and we couldn't think of anybody who was a better guest for us than General Wilsbach, commander of Pacific Air Forces. Next week, the whole team is going to be together for our collective year in review across our many beats. We're looking forward to that. And then we're going to resume coverage in early January when uh, we're on the other side of the holidays. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the program today General Ken Wilsbach, the commander of Pacific Air Forces. He is also the Air Component Commander for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, and he has also been nominated to become the next Air Combat Command Commander. General Wilsbach, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, well, thanks, Vago, and thanks, JJ. It's really great to, to be with you today, and I, I look forward to the dialogue. Very much so. We want to start with uh, China and and Russia, right? Every once in a while, people forget that Russia is a Pacific power as well. Every day you're tracking what the Chinese and the Russians are doing in their aerospace activities across the Indo-Pacific. What are the capabilities they're fielding, the operational concepts they're testing, and the activities that they're carrying out that concern you the most? And maybe let's start with China and we'll follow up with Russia in a minute. Yeah, you bet. So just to you know, validate your question, we never forget that Russia is a Pacific nation, um, and we do keep a close eye on them. And we'll we'll wait for those questions here later in the podcast. But on the China piece, if you if you go back just a few years, and you don't have to go back that far, um, you will remember that the Chinese Air Force and the Chinese Navy um, were really, you know, not impressive. Not at all. And we didn't even, I remember the first time I came out to the Pacific when I was a young captain, we didn't even much uh, train to the the Chinese capabilities because it was so old school that we didn't worry about it. Fast forward uh, to today, and um, they uh, they are no longer um, that second rate Air Force and Navy. In fact, you know, they have reinvented themselves in the course of just about two decades, uh, where they have um, some of the most sophisticated uh, platforms. And the thing that concerns you most is the, what they're developing. It's easy to see that they are going after the way that we fight. And um, they've developed systems, as an example, their anti-access area denial, where they um, project far out from their East Coast to deny access both in the air and at sea um, so that 
U.S. forces would would be deterred and or would not even be able to enter that battle space or water space or airspace, however you want to determine it. Um, that anti-access area denial capability is real, it's significant, and it's, it's capable. Now, I, I say that because we, we obviously um, have ways to get inside of that airspace and water space to contest that if called to do so. The other thing is the um, overhaul, complete overhaul of their uh, Navy and their Air Force to um, very modern fourth generation plus as well as fifth gen with the J-20s and their um, surface combatants with their Luyang and their Renhai ships, um, which uh, can project power um, pretty far out into the Pacific uh, and the South China Sea. You know, those those systems um, are really pretty new and uh, quite capable. Um, and so the the big concern to wrap the answer to the question up is um, the concern is, well, what do you intend to do with that? And we see what they intend to do with it by their writings. Right. Um, if you've, if you've uh, read the Taiwan question white paper that came out about two years ago, they tell you right in that writing, you know, what they intend to do with it. And it says right in there that they, they want to have uh, full control of Taiwan. They would love to have it by peaceful means, but if they have to, they'll take it by force. And when you uh, look at what the Russians are doing, right, what are some of the things they're doing? And if you could tie that also to the lessons you're drawing from Russia's war on Ukraine, right? I mean, there are a lot of armchair strategists who talk a lot about this and what it means for war in the Indo-Pacific. And yet when you talk to folks in the Indo-Pacific, it's about ranges and what are the Russians doing out there that we ought to be paying attention to? But also, what are the lessons you're drawing as one of the most important commanders in the region about what those lessons mean for deterring China and fighting and winning if you have to? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, we've been thinking about that um, now for more than a year and a half since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I started drawing lessons for our region, um, especially in the, the context of well, what if China has military aspirations uh, toward Taiwan, which we know they do, and then they act, you know, in violence um, with with those aspirations. And so, I, I've been thinking about this some um, quite a bit. And you know, one of the things that comes to mind um, as an airman is the lack of air superiority that either side has been able to achieve in the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, and the result of that, which has been incredible attrition on the ground and it, that harkens your mind back to you know the the trench warfare of world war one that doesn't seem like 21st century warfare and when you can't achieve air superiority you know that that's the result that you get um, so that's the, that's the first thing and the question that i've asked and you know the the lesson learned of you know why didn't russia achieve air superiority because before the conflict started i think most everybody thought and predicted that that russia should be able to achieve air superiority very quickly uh, and they didn't and why was that well part of the reason um, is uh, because they they lack the ability to command and control at the joint level uh, part of the reason is because ukraine has been quite innovative um, in the way that they have done air defense and used their 
uh, surface-to-air missiles, um, as well as their aircraft, and they've been quite mobile and have made it very difficult for the Russians to target their uh, surface-to-air missiles and their aircraft. Um, they've used uh, something very much like what we um, use in the Pacific. We call it agile combat employment, um, but they've moved their aircraft around and and their uh, missiles around to spoil the targeting of the Russians. And so they've been able to um, deny the Russians from gaining air superiority. You know, one other more strategic um, lesson um, that I think it's important to not forget is how authoritarian regimes communicate up and down their chains of command, which is very different than systems like ours. And the reason the, the reason why I bring this up is because it makes the senior leader, frankly, ignorant of what's actually going on. In our system, and we see this almost every day in the press, where there'll be a story from a young soldier, a sailor, airman, marine, guardian, who will make a complaint in the press and that'll um, boil up and the, the leaders have to, you know, they, they have to act to it and they, they have to, you know, solve the problem. And the same thing inside the chain of command where we expect, I expect my young uh, airmen that work in PACAF to let their immediate chain of command know when there's a problem and that should boil up and whatever level can take care of the problem, they should do it. And if, if they can't, uh, take care of the problem by the time it gets to me, then I, I want to try to take care of the problem if I have the resources to be able to do that. Just so much different in an authoritarian regime where you, you don't want to tell the boss no. You don't want to tell the boss even that there's a problem. And what happens when that when that occurs is you know the the leader thinks that the military is all good to go and they're they're ready and they're prepared for the objectives and the mission at hand when they're actually not. And then you get massive failures like what you've seen uh, with Russia in, U in Ukraine. Um, and that happens in almost every authoritarian regime that we see. And while it's tempting to think that Russia has extremely focused on Ukraine, what is their op tempo like? What are their operations like in your theater? What are you seeing them do now? I see them... Uh, decreasing the ops tempo in the last year and a half or so. Um, I still see them operating. They're certainly operating um, in the air and at sea, um, but I, I think it is a, a small decrease. And frankly, I see, you know, a bit of, I'll call it operational theater, <laughs> uh, where uh, they will do things to appear uh, like they've got everything at hand um, when, you know, my assessment is they probably don't have everything at hand. Uh, and so we, we see that occasionally with the combined operations between China and Russia and then Russia on, on their own. Um, but um, we certainly have seen a slight decrease in their operations tempo in our region. Now, PACAF is continually evolving and each of your predecessors has worked to build its capabilities. You've been very busy sharpening your force in a variety of ways that we'll get into in a bit. But which of your efforts do you think have made the most difference? And what are the top point or two on the memo to your successor to follow up? That's a great question. I like it. And uh, I'll tell you the two that come to mind um, straight away. And then I'll, I'll add a third one that we, we uh, want to continue to work on. The first one is our work with allies and partners. 
And uh, when you think about competition with China, they would love the competition to be China versus the U.S. And we actually believe that um, there's a there's a whole set of allies and partners that will be with us in one way or another. And that creates a calculus for the Chinese that is probably really troubling to them, which is why you see them constantly trying to put wedges between us and our allies and partners. And frankly, it's been an abject failure because it's not working. None of the, the wedges have really worked. And our allies and partners are um, you know, re- really committed to their way of life, which, by the way, happens to be very like-minded with our way of life, which is a free and open Indo-Pacific. And in fact, we just had the Pacific Air Chiefs Conference here in November. We had 22 total nations, including us. Uh, so 21 nations were visiting um, from all over the world. So not only do we have the Pacific uh, Air Chiefs here, um, well, we also had a number from uh, from Europe like um, Germany and France and the UK and the Netherlands. And um, it really uh, demonstrates the camaraderie, um, one, um, and the collective interest, uh, the like-minded interest um, with countries that care about the Indo-Pacific, also want a free and open Indo-Pacific, and are interested in making sure that if those interests are um, threatened in any way that they have the ability to respond inside the Pacific. So um, our work with allies and partners, I think, has uh, been a strength uh, of my command, and I'm, I'm quite proud of that. The other one is our agile combat employment. And I actually was uh, you know, on the ground when we started thinking about agile combat employment. I was actually um, the commander um, in Alaska, Hawaii, and Guam. I was 11th Air Force commander at the time when we started talking about this. And my um, predecessor, um, uh, at least a couple of times removed, was um, General T.J. O'Shaughnessy, gave us um, some work to do and come up with this notion of agile combat employment. And it started off, frankly, as a PowerPoint presentation. Here's what we want to do. And that was about six or seven years ago. And now it's a foundational capability of the entire United States Air Force. So we started just doing it in 11th Air Force and we expanded it out to PACAF. And now, you know, everybody in the Air Force talks about agile combat employment right now um, and and it's foundational. And so we've come a long way with our ability to execute um, agile combat employment and create targeting problems by any adversary that uh, we might face, whether it's in the Pacific or not. Um, And um, our airmen know what that means to them and how that changes the way they do their day-to-day business. Um, And it's quite, quite powerful. So those are the two things that I'm most proud of. The one that I think we need to continue to work on, which we are working on, but uh, we haven't seen the delivery of, of this part yet in a big way, but modernization of our force, um, not just in the Pacific, but writ large for the entire United States Air Force. So we need to continue to modernize not only the platforms, the aircraft, um, but modernize um, the weapons that go on those aircraft, and then networking um, all of that together so that you have the ability to sense, move, shoot, uh, recover, stay refueled, and rearm and relaunch. And so the the command and control and the network that's associated with that is also um, very incredibly important. And uh, there's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance that, you know, is sometimes in the air, sometimes it's in space, 
um, and uh, the way that the Air Force links together with the other services in a joint manner and the way that our joint forces link together with our allies and partners is all a part of that networking that is really something we need to continue to work on. By the way, we do that better than anyone else in the world, but we can still get better at it. You know, you uh, mentioned, and it's it's great to hear how much more closely we're working with our allies and partners, whether Japan and Korea, and starting to get to that point of true integration as opposed to just partnering up. I do want to go to the capability side of the equation, right? I mean, I think anybody who looks at the Air Force, but as well as uh, the military writ large, recognizes we're not modernizing quite as quickly as we need to. And one of the things that you need is range, 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 and volume, right? The, the distances are vast. And it's an adversary that has a lot of capability that has been banking. From your standpoint, are the right things in the pipeline to give you that reach, to give you that strike? But are you comfortable with the stuff that's in the pipeline that's coming down, whether on the weapon side, whether on the, uh, the platform side? to be able to, to give you that reach, to give you that sustainability, uh, ultimately to, to take this battle forward and to take it forward under fire. I am. We have these debates constantly um, in our Air Force about what, what we want to you know, spend our resources on that um, the C- Congress awards to the um, DOD, and then it, it, it gets um, further subdivided into the various services. And the things that that I've been asking for over the course of my command as as COMPACAF are, um, you know, in the budgets or in the future budgets, um, you know, or at least teed up for budgets to be funded you know, when they're approved. But and and let let me just go over some of these. Uh, so um, number one, F-15EX, really important platform, um, mainly because it is very long range, as you you know mentioned. Range is an important aspect. So um, F-15EX has conformal fuel tanks. Uh, it can go a long way unrefueled, and it can carry a very heavy ordnance load um, to include outsized weapons that may not fit in uh, the internal weapons bays of fifth-generation aircraft, which you guys know, you know, almost all the weapons in fifth-generation aircraft go internal to the weapons bay of the aircraft. They're not generally carried on external wing stations uh, to help the aircraft remain stealthy. Um, and with the F-15EX, it's not a stealthy aircraft and you can put uh, weapons on the wings, but the, the weapons bay doesn't constrain you from the size of the weapon. So you can have some really long range weapons that you can shoot off of the F-15EX, which is why you know, I, re- I really wanted um, that platform. So, you know, that's in, right. in the plan to um, purchase the the E7 aircraft is another um, platform by the way but just not not to interrupt but and when you pair that with the EPAWS electronic warfare system you, you've said it begins to emulate stealth capabilities so even though it's a big jet and it carries a lot of gas and it's a fourth generation jet it starts to emulate the attributes of a stealth aircraft to be able to operate forward right you're exactly right Vago and and it's um it becomes survivable you know in in an environment where Heretofore, only a stealthy aircraft could be survivable. But when you add EPAWS, that you know, fourth generation plus aircraft it becomes survivable in, in that environment. So you're exactly right. Back to the to the question though, E7, we really needed E7. Our E3s, you know, are frankly 1980s technology 
that are very difficult to continue to sustain and maintain. And our airmen uh, do a remarkable job of keeping uh, those aircraft ready, um, but they do struggle with readiness. Just to get them airborne is a struggle. And so we do need a new aircraft. The other aspect is the E-7 sensors, you know, are 20 to 30 years newer and more capable than the E-3 sensors. And so what the E-3 cannot see, the E-7 can see. Um, and so that really helps with your command and control and your battle management and um, helps for our fighters and other aircraft to, to be more effective. And so the E-7 obviously also in a program of record. And so we're looking forward to getting that aircraft. And then um, a number of air-to-air weapons like the AIM-260 JATAM, uh, which will be a huge improvement over our current air-to-air missile, the AIM-120. And then a number of uh, maritime uh, munitions that I'm very interested in because, you know, God forbid that we ever have this fight from China, but if we do have it, you know, one of the things that I will be asked to do uh, or my successor will be asked to do will be sinking ships. And so we have to have munitions um, that will target very well-defended surface combatants. Um, and so we we have a, a number of munitions that are um, in the purchase plan to add, add to our weapon stockpiles. Now on the defense side, the Air Force officially depends on the Army for air base, air and missile defense without starting an inter-service squabble. The Army has made it clear that it doesn't have enough equipment really to defend its own assets, much less anybody else's. How are you working with them and with the Navy to better defend your bases and to harden them since they are targets in any future conflict? Um, yes. So this is, an, you know, you stated it, it's an Army mission and um, they don't have enough assets to defend everything that they should be defending. So there's a couple of things. So you you mentioned the Navy. Um, so the Navy Aegis ships are extremely capable. And we do uh, collaborate between the Air Force, Navy and the Army uh, to provide defenses in places that we hold most dear. And you see that with uh, where the ballistic missile defense ships are located uh, oftentimes. And then, of course, we have FAD and Patriot deployed inside of the theater, and we have plans to, to bring in more of those um, sorts of things if uh, we have um, additional threat uh, that would warrant uh, bringing in uh, more. Um, and then um, there is, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's been a working group um, in the Pentagon between Headquarters Air Force and Headquarters Army for about the last six months to specifically tackle this notion of base defense, especially in the context of agile combat employment. So agile combat employment um, helps you with this um, because you can disperse your forces and create a lot more targets for your adversary to have to worry about. Um, so that's um, one thing that we're doing is advancing our capability to be agile around the battle space to avoid getting shot by a missile. Um, and you you see great success in Ukraine. They've been doing this for a year and a half, and they've been uh, very successful doing this. And so that that's one aspect. But this working group um, between the Army and the Air Force um, have been looking at uh, ways to very efficiently and effectively be able to come up with additional capabilities um, that perhaps aren't as onerous from the logistics standpoint as a THAAD or a Patriot. I actually personally believe 
um, that we're going to settle out on um, some kind of directed energy. And the beauty of directed energy is that it um, is agnostic toward what the threat is. So whether it's a bomb coming in, maybe it's a precision guided uh, weapon, um, it could be a missile, it could be a hypersonic even, it could be a stealthy cruise missile. The directed energy weapon <clears throat> doesn't care about any of that. As long as you have line of sight uh, from the emitter to the target, you can, excuse me, you can take care of it. So I think that's what we're going to settle on. More to follow on that. Uh, stay tuned. But um, I think some good work um, occurring between the Air Force and the Army. I want to take you to uh, what is making a few headlines as we record this. In September, Secretary Kendall announced his effort to revamp impediments to improving uh, war fighting. Over the years, you and I have discussed you know, how to streamline and improve the Air Force. Obviously, uh, when General Brown was chief, he was focused on that as well and asked you guys for ideas to do this. I know Secretary Kendall has been asking all of you guys for input. And you know, we have seen some news stories that you know the entire MAGCOM or major command structure of the Air Force uh, could change. What are some of the inputs, sir, that you're putting into this process? And you know, what is it that you hope will come out of it to streamline the force, to remove impediments to you know accelerating change across the board, right? Because like any organization, however agile, stuff builds up over time that kind of gets in the way. What's your sense? So we have constant, it's probably three days a week, uh, we have meetings where they are taking inputs from the major commands. Um, I've been sitting on, most of them are early morning meetings uh, from Hawaii, uh, but sitting in on a number of meetings uh, to place inputs. And um, so I'm not going to reveal too much uh, just because I don't want to get in front of the secretary because I know he's he's going to announce um, here in, in the future, but I, I will generalize. So the things that we want to do and uh, General Brown, you know, we, we all heard him say accelerate change or lose, right? Um, and so the, the idea behind this optimizing for great power competition is to take that accelerate change or lose and put some meat on the bones with respect to actually changing some behaviors and looking at ways that you can concretely deliver those changes to the Air Force to accelerate that change. Uh, so um, there are a number of lines of efforts uh, that we've subdivided the, the task. It's a big task, as you might imagine, but we're trying to leave no stones unturned with regard to the entire Air Force and looking at ourselves as introspectively as we can and assessing what are some things that we can do to optimize ourselves for uh, this great power competition that we find ourselves in. And you know, if we look back in the near history, you know, we, we became optimized a, a while ago for the fight in the Middle East. And so the, the notion behind this optimizing for great power competition is to shift that optimization for the current geopolitical situation. So uh, that's um, the primary thing we we're looking at and the inputs that have been coming from me as is the PACAF commander is we want to increase our agility. Uh, we want to make sure that we resource to the things that we know will work like agile combat employment and modernization. Um, and we need to train our people to be able to execute in that dynamic environment. 
um, and be able to command and control in a very challenged environment. And so if we can do those things, you know, we'll be in a much more optimized way. And there's hundreds of other things. We we could spend the rest of the day talking about this, um, but I'll, I'll leave it at that just because we're out of time. And um, I'll, I'll save some of the announcements for the secretary here in the near future. Fair enough, sir. Finally, making this all happen means empowering airmen. You regularly devolve authority to junior officers, whether during agile combat employment operations or other exercises. What are you doing to empower airmen and how are you seeing them respond? Well, the first thing that I'll tell you is it is so fun to watch young NCOs, really young NCOs like staff sergeants and young officers like captains and majors on an island in the middle of the Pacific and get a mission and just tell them, go go command and go lead. And to watch them do that um, is so impressive. But that's exactly what we're doing is we're doing exercises and we're doing agile combat employment and we're putting very young NCOs and officers in charge and we're giving them a mission and resourcing them to that level and they just deliver. It is impressive. I, I I have to tell you a story. So I was uh, on Tinian. This was about two years ago. We were doing an agile combat employment. We had some F-15Es deployed to Tinian. The debt commander was a captain, maintenance officer. He had just pinned on captain the week before. So he was a lieutenant the week before. And uh, he was leading uh, this uh, the four F-15s that were on, he had, was in charge of the entire, all the maintenance. He was in charge of the base. Um, so he had, you know, shelters and food and water. He had to, he had to make sure the F-15s were fixed. Uh, we had to make sure that they were ready for the flight schedule, et cetera. And his senior enlisted was a tech sergeant. And they were running that whole thing by themselves, about a hundred people on Tinian. And uh, he did marvelously from Mountain Home Air Force Base, Idaho, just did a marvelous job. And I can tell stories like that all day long of examples where young NCOs and young airmen are uh, put out in dispersed locations and they just deliver leadership. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. It was an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, hope uh, everything politically gets resolved and you can take up your next assignment at Air Combat Command, where we look forward to driving down the road to see you. Until then, hope you and yours have very happy holidays and a very uh, happy new year from us for a happy, healthy, and prosperous 2024. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Thanks, JJ. It was really fun to spend some time with you and it, it seemed really too short. We should do this again sometime. Um, it was a great time and happy holidays to you and yours as well. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week.